Let's give God praise today. He is King, amen. He is Lord, amen. And that is who we worship. We're glad to have you here. You may be seated. Let's go ahead and jump into the Word of God this morning. Uh, but right before we do that, I got a question for you Who do you speak of Jesus being? Like if someone walks up to you and they say, hey, who, who do you think Jesus is? What do you, how do you naturally respond? What, what are the words? What are the sentences? What's the phrase that you say in terms of who Jesus is to you? Guys, whether you're visiting here or not, we are unashamed to say that we worship Jesus Christ as our Messiah. And that the word of God is from him. And what people discover who reject that so many, many times, is that they're actually, when they're rejecting Christ, they're running away from freedom rather than toward it. And so we need to ask that question. Go ahead, grab a pen if you would. Go ahead and grab one. And there's, there's a couple of places on each aisle on the sides where there's some pens and Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to, to give you one. Take it, you can have it. Um, and go ahead and write down what are the two or three words or the phrase that would best help you describe who Jesus is. Go ahead. I'm going to give you some time. Write it down. Some of you aren't doing it. It's okay. You're just storing it in your memory bank there. Maybe you can do it on your phone. That's okay as well. Who do you naturally say that Jesus is? Right? I know there's probably at least two or three Michigan fans here. Anybody? Right? I'd like to say congratulations. If that doesn't show you that God is a God of miracles. <laughs> like literally before the service, I was like, I shouldn't say anything about Michigan. And then I just did. Um, no, it's fun. I love it when Michigan or Michigan State is doing really well in anything because it's just, it's neat to be around the energy and everything else. Um, I tell you, if someone is coming to you during the Final Four and you're watching Michigan play and they say, hey, I've been meaning to ask you, what's with this Jesus thing? Would you, would you say, oh, yeah, and give them your attention or, or would you look at them and say, dude, not now. It's, it's not a good time. What do you naturally say about who Jesus is, right? What kind of passion do you have for him? Guys, we know that passion comes directly from that which you value. That's where passion comes from. I was able, my, my buddy Fred DeGraff uh, invited me to come speak to some guys on Thursday about passion. And people ask me sometimes, I mean, you get so passionate, not everybody's like you. It's very simple, guys. Passion comes from that which you value. Right, there's a lot of things I don't get passionate about. Anybody get passionate about folding clothes? Right? No. Washing dishes? No. I get passionate about telling my kids to do it. Right? Like, there are certain things you don't get passionate about. Doing your taxes. And if you're a CPA, it's not meant as a jab, but God bless you. Right? Like, nobody says, I can't wait to do my taxes every year. I hope the IRS calls me over and over and audits me. 
right? Nobody, why? Because you get passionate about that which you value. And I value the story of Jesus because it changed humanity. It changed humanity. And so today, as we look at this passage that I read for you earlier, really what you're going to see is it's in four different phases. That's how we're going to look at it today. We're going to break it down because I want you to be able to walk out of this place today recognizing, remembering, acknowledging what had just taken place. And so in the very beginning that I've already read, uh, in Luke chapter 19, it's this triumphal entry. And he says these things. He goes ahead into Jerusalem. He's drawing near Bethpage and Bethany and near the Mount of Olives there. And as he's walking in, he tells his disciples, a couple of them, hey, I want you to go to this village that's ahead. And I want you to untie this colt and I want you to bring it to me to ride on it. If anyone says, hey, why are you taking my donkey? I want you to tell them because the Lord has need of it. Right? That's, that's right there for us in Luke chapter 19. And that exact thing ends up taking place. So they go ahead, they find this donkey, they untie it, right? And as soon as they do, it tells us, so those who sent away found it just as he told them, and as they were untying the coal, its owners, right, uh-oh, what's going to happen here? Like even as a disciple, I'd be like, is Jesus asking us to steal something? And he's not. I am certain they returned it in better condition than they found it. Right? But all of a sudden, here's the owner, and the owner says, hold up. Why, 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 are, you ta- why are you taking my property? Because that was valuable for them. That's often, you know, you look at animals and livestock. For them, that is, whether it's a donkey or not, that's how many of them classified your wealth. And how much you were able to have in life. And so all of a sudden, this, these guys are taking their donkey and they're going, what, what are you doing here? And he says, the Lord has need of it. And this is what we find out. We don't know all the details of the story, of course. But what we see is, all of a sudden, the guy seems to be cool with it. It doesn't say that any of the, the cops were called or anything else. He, they literally just say, hey, listen, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. Can you imagine being the owner of that, that donkey, that colt, and just standing off to the side watching them? Hey, whoa, now they're throwing cloaks on it and, and, and blankets, and they're sitting this guy on it. Is, is that the guy who's been doing all these miracles that I've been hearing about? You see, what we're going to find in these four different phases of this story is you're going to hear four different cries. That's how we're going to speak of it today, four different cries. And you're going going to be able to write those down. And the very first cry that you see is a cry of ownership. Please write it down because here is this cry of ownership. And I love how how we don't have any hostility, it seems, at least, toward this guy who owned this donkey. But for many of us, one of the things that we really need to do, and it will impact your, your, your Holy Week, it's going to impact your Good Friday. If, if, you want a, if you want a powerful time, come Friday at one of the services, right? And it's going to impact how we celebrate Easter and everything else. But we have to examine whether or not we've actually dealt with the issue of ownership in our own life. Because the Lord comes and says, I want that. 
And the owner could have said, no, 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 you're not taking my, my property. You're not taking what belongs to me. But he seemed to have given it up pretty freely, pretty easily. It, doesn't, it certainly doesn't seem that there was a hindrance there and a continuation of what God had already ordained for his purpose. But have you settled the issue of ownership in your own life? Like, have you settled that issue of ownership of saying, you know what? I no longer belong to myself. It's why one of the prayers I say every morning when I wake up, God, I am not my own. I no longer belong to myself. God, I am not my own. And I say it over and over and over again because it changes the way I process things that happen and occur in my life. That's what I've discovered for myself. Why? Because, we, right, if you have kids, you know that from one of their very first words, first word of any decent kid is dad, right? And you're there. That's good today, right? So dad or mom. Um, and, you know, my kids, of course, all their first words were, Jesus, I love you. And um, so you have all this happening, and they're, they're always claiming, but probably the fifth word is mine. You ever notice that? Mine. Someone else comes and takes one of their toys, mine. Right? Right beforehand, you're ooing and awing over them, you're touching the belly, and they're laughing. And then as soon as someone takes something of theirs, they get this face, they, and they just, mine. And they claim ownership of it. You know when they stop releasing ownership of it? Is when either they've placed no more value on it, or they just don't see that they have much need of it. Which is similar to the same thing. And that's what my kids did to the younger kids, is when they're two, three, four years old, the little baby would take one of their toys, and I'm like, no, mine, and they take it back. But you know what? All of a sudden, as they got older and over, older, all of a sudden, they didn't care about those toys anymore. They didn't care <laughs> if their younger sibling was going to play with it, because they found no more value in it. And often we are so protective in that which God is calling us to surrender because we have found too much value in that, greater value than what we have placed on Christ. And so we need to settle the issue of ownership. There was a cry of ownership here, but there was a proper cry of ownership of going, yes, what I have belongs to God. You can take it. You can have it. You can do whatever you want with it. We hold most tightly to that which we value the most. And Christ is coming. And one of the reasons we struggle so much is because we have not settled the issue of ownership. Of our time. Of our resources. Right? Of, of where we give our energy and what we give our energy to. And Christ has come, and he said, I want all of you. I, I, I want ownership of everything. And for some, I want you to please, please, please think about this for just a moment. What is it in your own life that you have not surrendered ownership of to Christ? that you would automatically justify as, God wouldn't ask me to do that. <laughs> Be careful. What is it for you? Process that. That's a great discussion starter at lunch today. Isn't that fantastic? Like you go to lunch and say, hey, what are you not willing to give to Jesus? It's a great way to start a discussion, you know, with your, with your loved one, with a friend, with a parent. 
Kids, I encourage you, ask your parents, look at them in the eyes and say, hey, what are we not willing to do for Jesus as a family? Because we need to settle the issue of ownership. So that's what we have here. We have this cry of ownership. And we have to ask ourselves, are we making ourselves, our lives, and our resources available to Christ by saying, I am not my own? The story continues here, though. And it, they, they sit Jesus on the donkey, and they, they bring it to him, and there he is. And he rides along, verse 36 and following, and they spread their cloaks on the road. And it says... In verse 37 and following, it says, When he came near the place to where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples. Now, I want us to leave, if you would, I think we have a passage of Scripture here, right there. Let's throw that passage of Scripture up, if you would. Um, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, there it is. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God. Now, one of the things I want you to notice here is it says the whole multitude of disciples. It doesn't say the whole multitude of people. It says the whole multitude of disciples. Often what's said is, hey, those are the exact same people who say crucify him. Yes, people in that crowd might have been a part of that, the fickle ones, but these were the disciples. These are the ones who may have been hiding a bit, but they were also weeping what was happening several days later. And so this whole multitude of disciples, and that also the multitude, it tells you that it was growing. These are people who had seen his work. They had seen his miracles. They had seen the impact of his ministry. And so as a result, they're calling out, and they recognize that he's coming in peace. And as I was referring earlier in the service, that, that, that sign of peace of all, uh, coming in on a donkey is important because so many of them expected him to come and overthrow everything. And they just begin to worship. And that's what you find here. One, you move from this cry of ownership to the second phase of you have this cry of worship. The followers of Jesus were worshiping him. This cry of worship that, that could not be contained. That could not be hindered. Because it says that they began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. For all the remember, they had already seen him um, healing someone with leprosy. You know, he, he touched a leper, and they were healed. He made the blind see. The deaf was hearing now. The lame was walking. He had calmed storms, like st waves blowing and, and, and water crashing in. And he said, be still. They had witnessed these things. Trust me, those are things that as soon as those who had seen those those events unfold. They're running out and telling everybody else about what had occurred. They had seen him turn some fish and some bread into the opportunity to, to feed thousands when it originally started as lunch for a little boy. And so now he, they're saying with loud voices, they're praising God for all of these miracles that they had seen. And then they begin to declare Declaring in their voice, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. And it's a fulfillment of prophecy. That's part of it. But this cry of ownership for at least the disciples, you know, they had settled that issue. When you settle the issue of ownership, the response is praise and worship. When you settle that issue of ownership, the response is a cry of worship, a cry of declaring who he is, and we see that unfolding. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to 
glory to God in the highest. Uh, to me, they're remembering Isaiah chapter 9, right? It's a passage for us because he says, Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, Jesus was ushering in the kingdom of God in a new way. To establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And now he was doing this. Right? So often for us, we refer to kingdom as being a specific place. But when you look at it in Greek, it's often referring to the activity or the action that one has that also includes a place, it can include a place, but it's an action or an activity that one has because of what someone has done on their behalf. And so they recognize that this kingdom is being ushered in. They recognize that this kingdom is being ushered in. You know, when you look at the cry of worship, I think that's the question we have to ask is, if we've really settled that issue of ownership, are we worshiping him appropriately? Are we watching worship, right? Or are we participating in worship in the way that we speak? Worship is not just this. I love coming together corporately and worshiping with you guys, right? But worship is also, we know the way we speak, the way we act. It's the activity that we have in every single day of our life is a reflection of who we've surrendered ownership to. And if you haven't surrendered ownership to Christ and you've kept it for yourself, that's why often those are the individuals who are the most selfish. They are looking out for number one. They're looking out just for themselves. And that's being reflective of that issue of ownership. But these guys, man, they'd settled that. And now they're crying out in worship. They have this cry of ownership. They get it, but they have this surrendering to God. And now they are worshiping him in such a powerful way. As we continue in this passage, though, as they're calling out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory, glory in the highest. It's as though that they're, they're just, have this abrupt interruption. It's, it's like, boom! Because here they are, it says they're declaring with what? A loud voice. Glory to God in the highest. And, and they're, inter, they're interrupted in this. Because it tells us that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, like it's, there was no like, hey, we'll build up to this. Like it's boom. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they interrupt, and, and they, they said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these stones were solid, the, the very, these very stones would cry out. Here's what we're finding with the Pharisees who say this, is that actually what you're discovering is another cry. You know what the cry is? It's a cry of unbelief. Another way of saying unbelief, right, a word that's very similar, is a cry of fear. I don't believe that these were the guys who were making sure that Jesus was crucified, right? 
sometimes the Pharisees get a bad rap, and some, sometimes rightfully so. Um, but we also need to remember, they were just wanting to uphold the law and everything. And it was so difficult for them to see what God could really be doing. And we know that fear is rooted in unbelief. And I don't think that they could believe it. And so as a result, they're saying, stop. I think they were fearful of Rome coming. And all of a sudden, there's a bloodbath. And there could have easily have been. This bloodbath coming from Rome, from the soldiers, from everybody else in authority saying, we'll put an end to this right now. When you're declaring his name as being God and as Lord and as glory to God in the highest, when you're starting to call out these things, we can do something about that. We'll classify it as blasphemy and we can have a bloodbath right now. I think that there was this unbelief in who Jesus really was and they were fearful. And so they were trying to silence the followers of Jesus. Maybe that's some of you. Maybe it's a neighbor that you have or a family member that you have. There's, there's this cry of unbelief. Like even, even when you're coming into worship and you're coming to, to, to church, you still then step out and you're going, do I really believe this? And you're struggling with that belief that Christ is who he says he is. And his response is, listen, even if you are silent, even if, if these people are silent, the very stones would cry out. Here's the message that you've got to hear. No matter what you do, Jesus will be worshipped. You can't stop it. God has ordained it. Jesus will be worshipped. But what we need to do is go, wait a second. Are we the ones that are struggling with the unbelief? Are we the ones... That maybe if we look at it, evaluate our own worship, we, we like the sound of it. We like the idea of knowing that, hey, eternity, that's mine because I'm declaring myself to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We like that premise, but we have not really settled the issues of unbelief that we have in our life. Of fear that we have in our life. Maybe that's something that you need to really speak with someone about. You need to be praying, God, help my unbelief. Jesus encountered that. People actually walked up to him and said, Lord, help my unbelief. They believed, but they, they knew that they weren't where they needed to be in their faith. And so they, they wanted to grow. They, they wanted to, to know more about who Christ really was It also tells you something about the power of God and about the power of Christ. He's already letting you know, listen, even the rocks are going to cry out. Everybody, everybody will worship the name of Christ at some point. He can make praise come from the rocks. And he can do the same from people. And this is something that we need to acknowledge, that he's speaking these words knowing what was about to come. The betrayal, the mockery, the flogging. He knew what was about to come, and yet he's saying, I will be worshipped. 
All of it was planned. The unbelief and the hostility toward Christ was not a surprise to him. He tells them in verse 42, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He knew that they could not see as he saw. And that's what leads to this additional portion of scripture because he's saying to them, listen, I tell you, if these stones are silent, or if, if you're silent, even the stones will cry out. And then it says in verse 41 and following, he says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Really what we have here is a cry of brokenness. It's the fourth movement that we see in this passage. You go from this cry of ownership with the donkey, and then you go to this cry of worship with the disciples. Right? If you've really surrendered ownership, what do you do as a response? You worship. Here's what's interesting here, is that now the third tier is this cry of unbelief, this cry of fear. Please stop making such a ruckus. Do you have to mess up everything? Don't you know what could come as a result of your praise and worship of God? And so now there's this cry of unbelief. And as a result of it, you have a cry of brokenness. And guys, that's exactly why now there is a physical crying from Christ. It's one of two times that we find Jesus crying. The other time is not very much in front of this with crying with the sisters, Mary and Martha of Lazarus. And now he's crying because he sees, he knows of the brokenness of the people. It's a cry of brokenness. It's a movement here from ownership to worship and then now from unbelief to brokenness. He saw their unbelief. He saw their hurt. He saw their pain. He saw they didn't get it. And he was broken for them. We know, we, we don't always see the words that he cried, but it does tell us that he responded emotionally to those who were hurting. Jesus responded to, emotionally to those who were hungry and even to sometimes people who were sinning. It tells us that he had compassion on them. And I believe he looked at the city of Jerusalem and he cried and he saw the crowd and he realized the emptiness of their lives. They had not received, even if they had heard it, they had not received the message of peace. They didn't understand that God was visiting them and his son Jesus Christ. John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own received him not. And Christ knew that they were not receiving him. And so he drew near the city and he wept over it. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. I think we learn a, a great amount from the tears of Jesus. From the cries of Jesus. We learn a lot about who he is. 
We learn a lot about how he hurt for others. We learn a lot about the fact that, you know, he knew what was coming, and yet he chose to endure it anyway. We learn a great amount from the tears of Jesus. And one of the things that when you recognize why Jesus was crying, when you recognize what he was willing to do for the people regardless, what happens is your admiration of Jesus grows. Maybe that's another way to help you answer the question or the issue of ownership. Do you admire Jesus? Because people you really admire, you want to emulate. Do you admire Jesus for what he did? Because he'd walk over this hill walking into Jerusalem for the very last time. And he wept because he saw the brokenness of the people. Really, that's the story of Holy Week. Jesus walks in. There's this, this celebration, but for some, possibly a false celebration. But really, what we find is that Jesus knew the brokenness of the people. Jesus identified the brokenness of the people. He identified it tomorrow morning on a Monday when he walks in. We know that the next day he walks into the temple and he begins to throw the tables over. Why? Because he knew they were doing it for the wrong reason they were selling not for the good of God they were selling things for the good of self they had not settled the issue of ownership he knew of their brokenness and because he knew of their brokenness what it leads to is Good Friday because he knew what could take place of their brokenness is him being broken it led from Christ going they are broken to going I must be broken for them That's the story. Jesus knew of our brokenness. He saw our brokenness. And he hurt over our brokenness. And it does not matter what's going on in your life right now. Christ has endured more. And he's done it for you. And the admiration that comes from that should just, it should shift your life. It should change your life. He wept over the spiritual condition of the people. You ever cry for others who hurt? I think about the number of cars, and I've mentioned this previously, but I think about the number of cars who drive by this place on a daily basis. I'm told over 30,000 vehicles up and down Baldwin every day. And I think about that, and I think about the number of people who are driving by who don't know Jesus. I think about the number of people you work with every day who don't really know who Christ is. I think about the people you go to school with who don't know who Christ is. Maybe they know who he is, prophet, but they've never settled the issue of ownership, and so there's no praise in their life. You want to know, when you look at someone and you want to discover whether or not they really worship Jesus Christ, look at their worship. You cannot say that you acknowledge what Christ has done for you and then respond by going, that's nice, and walking away. It demands a greater response than that. Remember, your passion comes from that which you value. And when you place the proper value on who Christ is, you will know why he walked into the city for the very last time and he was broken and that he wept for the people. 
And one of the things that I think we need to be doing is we need to be sharing in the tears of God's mercy, of God's grace. We need to be sharing in those tears because those tears led to him being crucified. To take our sin, to take our hurting, to take our brokenness. Um, This last few days have been interesting for me. On Thursday afternoon around 4 o'clock, I get a phone call, 3.34, I get a phone call from my son. And he says, hey, um, Kate fell, the arm's really bad, come home now. And I knew, like the voice, and you just know. So I take off, and she did a, um, we, we have a teaching, a lesson in our house that says do everything with excellence. She was excellent in snapping both of her bones right in half. She, I told her, I said, you're modeling it. You did it with excellence. And it was, a, it was a solid, like here's the arm, and then a good 25 degrees this way, 25 back this way, and then straight again. It's hard to look at. Um, if you're a cop, I need to just confess right now, I sped a lot driving to the ER. Um, but God's forgiven me. I pray you will too. I was flying. And, uh, man, I, I think about it. And I, one of my prayers, I'm looking at her, and we're in the ER, and she's thanking the nurses. Thank you for helping me. I'm like, oh, my goodness, stop. Um, and I'm just hurting for her, and I'm praying with her. I'm like, look at me. I'm like this far from her face. Look at me right now. Because she couldn't look at it, and they were afraid if she looked at it too much, she would blank out. And so because, I mean, it was all disconfigured. And so I'm like, you just look at me, and I'm praying, God, this is your child. May she know your peace and comfort, but then inside I'm saying, God, give me her pain. You ever done that as a parent, anybody? You, when you see your kid hurting, you just want to take it for him. And I'm going, man, God, just give me her pain. Jesus walked into Jerusalem. And he said, God, give me their pain. He said, give it to me. They can't handle it. They're going to be lost. They're not going to know what to do with themselves. God, I'll take it. And some of you, are, you're in a marriage right now. Some of you are sitting beside someone that you don't want to be sitting by, and they're your spouse. Some of you have an addiction, and you don't know how to get over it. Some of you don't know how to process the way that your parents raised you or maybe didn't raise you. Some of you really just don't care about others who don't know Jesus because you really don't know him yourself. And you would never use these words 
because you're too high and mighty maybe to use these words you're broken and maybe you have incredible insecurities and anxiety I have them too trust me I walk in my friend Cindy Heath she's my ministry assistant and I tell her she's like how's the day I'm like I feel like the world is falling in around me and I feel like everything's collapsing the church is about to fire me and she's like what are you talking about I'm like my family I'm like I'm just and she's like okay stop Joel you're the one who preaches it and then she does that whole thing. You need to remember. And she throws my previous sermon in my face. How dare she? She goes, you're listening to the wrong voice. You're listening to Satan. That's what you tell me all the time. You need to listen to the voice of God. You were broken. But you have been healed in the name of Jesus Christ. And so he walks through the city. Weeping. He's telling God, give, give me their brokenness. And that should mess with you. Here's the question for you. Will you cry out to God? I mean, do you have a cry of ownership that you need to settle? cry of unbelief do you need to cry out in worship maybe you need to cry out from your brokenness let me encourage you with one more statement here's the good news we know what the cry is next week and it's one of victory amen may you cry out in worship. He was beaten for you. Right? We know the flogging. It's not a nice little whip. It's a giant piece of leather that has bone and everything else tied to it that would literally was designed to rip the flesh off of his body. And he allowed himself to be broken completely. So that you can know what it is to have victory in the name of Jesus Christ. To recognize that you're not going to give value to the temporary anymore. You're going to give the ultimate value to the eternal. Because when you give value to the eternal, which is only in the name of Jesus Christ, there's a passion that wells up within you. There is a hurt that wells up in you for others who don't know him because you're looking at their brokenness and going, I know the answer. And what's his, what's his name? Then share it. Then share it as we worship him. God, you are beautiful. And some of us are struggling because we really don't want to surrender everything to you. But God, if there's somebody in this place today who needs to settle that issue of ownership, help them to surrender everything. Help them to settle that issue of ownership today. Help them to have the courage and the strength to do it. Some of these friends of mine, they just need to worship like never before. Help them to have a cry of worship that permeates every part of their life. God, for some, they are struggling with unbelief. Show them your face and let them hear your voice.
God, may we be broken for those around us. Knowing that we've been made alive in you. Amen. Guys, during this last song, if you want to come and worship up here, if you want to come, just pray. And you need to surrender yourself to Christ. Feel free to do so. Feel free to bring a friend and pray for them, a spouse, whatever you need to. But may we worship. Because we know that that cry of brokenness is going to turn in to a cry of victory. Amen? Let's stand and worship him.